with me in the introduction. Um, so. Amen. <laughs> Very well done. Excellent. Book of Mark, chapter 12 tonight. Mark, chapter 12. Hmm. Is this pastor's water or my water? Mine? Thank you. Okay. Amen. Mark chapter 12, and pastor called me, let me know, and I'm, of course, uh, very honored, privileged to be asked to preach. Glad to know that there's uh, plenty of capable people, capable people here that could do it, and uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I've asked pastor many, on many different occasions, what should I preach uh, when I've been in some situations not sure what to do, and his answer is always the same. He just says, preach what's fresh, and so... Uh, uh, what God's put on your heart, something that's burdening you and uh, that God's speaking to you about. And so I think that's where we are tonight in the book of Mark. And I mentioned to our uh, people this morning uh, that I was very proud of them. We have uh, about five or six, uh, I would say, regular attenders uh, down there in Greenpoint, plus, you know, visitors, people that are in and out. Uh, but I, usually the, that group I can count on to be there. And four of them are from California. And uh, so I said, you know, you're earning your New Yorker stripes because uh, they were they were here on the coldest day of the year, maybe the coldest day in the last 20 years. Uh, so, I, you know, I told them I was very, very proud of them. Of course, across the street from us, there's a uh, um, kind of an event center. And I felt sorry for the people in there because they were having a wedding on the coldest day of the year. But, uh, you know, it's what it is. Right. And New Yorkers just uh, just go through it. I can remember my first winter here, learning the ins and outs of what it's like to live in the city and seeing, uh, I think we had it. We had a couple inches of snow on the ground and they were calling for like a foot more that night. It was a Sunday night. Here comes Miss Ann with her cane, just walking on through the snow like, you know, it's just another day going to church, you know, full, nice dressed up all nice. And that lady taught me a lot about what it means to be a New Yorker, that you just do it. You don't complain. And uh, I really appreciate her and that, that spirit that's here. Well, Mark chapter 12 tonight, and we're going to read uh, through the first um, 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. The Bible says this, And he, being Jesus, began to speak unto them by parables. Now he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. That would be kind of a mixture of the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and even some of the Sadducees would be in this audience as well. He began to speak unto them in parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandmen a servant, that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of his vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant, and At him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity to open your word. Thank you for this place, this pulpit, uh, for what it means, what it represents. uh, The place where we can um, come in from the storm, come in from the cold. And there's warmth here, uh, both physically and spiritually. There's the fellowship of believers. And Lord, I I, I thank you so much for that. And I thank you for... Uh, our pastor, and pray that you'd bless him as he as he travels with his family down to this meeting, and that you would use them as they minister to your people. And Lord, I pray for Brother Fryman that can't be here with us tonight, and for his dear wife who is taken ill. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless them and and heal her up, and and get them back to that work that you're doing there in Riverhead. Lord, bless us now tonight as we look into your Word. And may we see uh, some doctrine here that we can learn from, but we would see ourselves, and that Lord. Uh, You would help me to communicate this message clearly and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, Jesus is entering into, uh, as you kind of walk through the book of Mark here, he's entering into his Jerusalem ministry. And this is the time when he would have been ministering for many months in the, the area which is the north side of the Sea of Galilee and going from all those little towns back and forth and across uh, the Sea of Galilee. Now he's traveled down to the city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem, his ministry has gone from a teaching and healing and kind of a crowd gathering ministry to more of a confrontational ministry. He's been in the synagogues. He's been with the chief priests. He's been with the elders, the rulers of the Jewish people. And there's really kind of been one confrontation after another. And he's handled it very well. He usually leaves them when they would throw questions at him. He usually has a way of throwing their words back at them and kind of leaving them speechless where there's nothing that they can say. And it's really a good uh, case in apologetics. You don't always have to win the argument. Uh, Jesus kind of proves that. He could have, well, of course, he could have called down 10,000 angels. But, you know, of course, he had the wisdom to uh, answer any way that uh, he thought best. But uh, the way he answered them is a pretty good answer for us, too. You don't always have to. Even when you're right, you don't always have to let everyone know it. And uh, Jesus was very good at that uh, in the way he would answer them. And so Jesus answers the Pharisees, the chief priests, in many different confrontations here. And now he comes and he begins uh, teaching in parables to them. Now, this deeply frustrates them uh, because if he's going to speak in a parable, then everyone's going to come around and pay attention to that. So if he's speaking a parable against them, which the end of this passage indicates then everybody's going to know it. And there's going to be kind of an audience where Jesus is calling them out. And I like the parables because unlike um, a typical metaphor or simile where you can kind of break apart each part and each part has its own meaning, the the parable has a central meaning. And it's taken not from some um, kind of um, uh, fantastical story or something made up that could never possibly be true, but um, parables generally are rooted in real-world situations. So when... uh, When Jesus taught using a parable, he would be teaching a story from something that they understood very well. So here in this part of Palestine, talking about a vineyard uh, and somebody leasing out property for workers to work it would have made perfect sense to them. Would have been an illustration they could easily grab onto, an an illustration they could easily understand. And so Jesus gives a parable about a vineyard. And he says in verse 1 that a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it. Digged a place for the wine fat, 
built a tower, let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And I'm told that that's a very common thing, that somebody would come in, possibly a foreigner, would come in and buy a piece of land, and he would invest his own money into the development of that land. He would uh, take basically something from nothing. He would take um, uh, a piece of land that maybe somebody thought wasn't worth very much, and he would cultivate it. He would be, so it talks about building a tower there. That would be a place to live, a place for workers, a place to protect that land. And he would do all the work that it takes. And, I, you know, I don't have a garden or anything like that. Uh, you know, I'm on the second floor. Uh, but I know that uh, it takes a lot of work to have one. And uh, I know that it takes a lot of work to grow things. And I, I don't have a garden, but I look and look down at my neighbor's garden. And they're down there. And uh, I see that it takes a lot of work. Uh, and I can see when they don't do the work, uh, what happens, that it, it, it doesn't turn out very well. And their garden it appears to be a producing garden where they're trying to produce fruit, not just nice trees to look at. And that certainly has its benefit, but they're trying to grow something that they can eat. And I can see that it takes a whole lot of work. And I'm guessing a whole lot of money, too, because you've got to buy, you know, the fertilizers and the right kind of soil and the right kind of seeds. And there's a lot of investment that goes into it. And so with this vineyard, I can only imagine that uh, it was very expensive. It was a lot of costs went into this vineyard. And it appears that this husband, that this um, owner of this land, that he did it right. Because it gives you all those steps there that he um, he bought the land and he put a hedge about it for protection. He digged a place for the wine fat. He built a tower. He lit it out to husband. So he did everything that he could do to make sure that this vineyard would be a producing vineyard. That if you had people properly work this land, that it would have everything that it needs to produce the fruit and the fruit would be sold and he would bring it into his personal accounts for the cost that it takes to run the vineyard and and whatever other business ventures he had going on and taking care of his family and whatever his business happened to be. And then, of course, he wouldn't work the vineyard himself. He had many different pursuits. So owning this vineyard and seeing that it needed to be worked provided job opportunities. And so there was others that were husbandmen. And they would come in and they would work this man's land. Now, they could never afford land themselves. They wouldn't bother trying to do that. They wouldn't bother trying to build a hedge or doing a building a tower, all these things. They would come in. They would get to live on the land and they would basically be under contract. And they would serve the man who owned owned the land. And for the most part, they would be happy about that. And I'm guessing from the details of this story here that if you came and you asked these men and they had to answer truthfully, to you, how they felt about their job, if they had to answer truthfully, then they would probably say, man, this this guy that we work for, he's done this thing right. I mean, he's bought a good piece of land and he's taking care of it. And we've got some we've got nice tools and he put in the right kind of seed here and this thing is growing and, and anything we need, he takes care of it. If they were to answer honestly, I think that they would have to say that, that, man, where we work, our boss, he knows what he's doing and we're getting fair wages and we're getting a nice place to live and we're, we're making a decent living and he's and he's getting what he needs from this vineyard. And they would they would work and he would come and he would collect the fruits of his vineyard and they would get their agreed payment. Sounds fair, right? But from the details of the story, I imagine that if you ask them, they wouldn't answer truthfully. Because what we find out here is what these men are. Well, I borrowed a term uh, from another author who calls them rebellious renters, that these men didn't have a good attitude about working in this vineyard, that we find out from the details of the story that if we were to come and ask them and they were to give you their opinion about what they thought of the situation, these were probably the kind of guys where in their job, nothing was ever right. You know anybody like that? 
oh, the tools are not right. And if we had this, things would be better. And man, we don't make a good wage. And, and, and they're always complaining and nothing is ever as it should be. And the boss is always wrong. And oh, man, if I had this place, if this was my vineyard, then let me tell you how I would do it. And of course, they would never try to buy one on their own. They would never have the means to buy it on their own. They would never have the business savvy to get to the place where they could afford to buy one on their own. But well, they would probably say, yeah, I could if I wanted to, but I'm just choosing not to right now. I'm exploring different things in my life. And, you know, this is yeah. But to this guy, he doesn't know what he's doing. And if I ran this place, let me tell you, it would be totally different. And uh, just kind of, you know what I'm talking about, that kind of an attitude. And um, and these men probably, I'm, I'm guessing from the details of the story, probably didn't have much knowledge about what it took to make the vineyard work. Now, they knew how to how to do their own jobs, but they probably had no idea how much this man had invested in the vineyard. They probably didn't have no idea how much money and time and resources were tied up into making this place possible into the uh, many hours of labor and uh, intense labor to do all this building and to, uh, to to seek the right piece of land and to turn this into a profitable enterprise. They probably had no idea the cost and investment that it took to make this place happen. And so um, verse two says at the season, he sent the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, that's perfectly reasonable, isn't it? He's doing exactly what he said he would do. They grow. He comes and collects. They get a fair wage. They get a place to live. Everything is as it should be. But when the servant comes to the husbandman, he doesn't find the master's fruit ready to be sold or the profits from that sale ready to be handed over to the master. They're just in right pay to be received and for everything to go on the way they agreed. No, he he walks into a scene of extreme envy and extreme jealousy. Because in the time that the master was away, these workers built up resentment in their hearts towards the master of the vineyard. And they began to say, Yeah, this can't believe we're out here breaking our backs every day for this guy and all he pays us for this and look what he gets to collect. And they got out the they got out the the invoice there and they said, Man, look at this. We do all this and, and look what we get compared to what the master gets. Can you believe that? This is this isn't right. This is where's the justice in this world? I tell you, this is this is ridiculous. How can this be? And man, who does this guy think he's some kind of a fat cat or something? And I'm telling you, jealousy and envy and greed built up in these men's hearts to when it finally came time for the master's servant to arrive to do exactly what he was obligated to do, exactly what they had agreed, agreed that he should do. When the master's servant came, he found angry envious, rebellious renters. And so much so that when the servant came, their frustration was so much at his peak, it says that they caught him and beat him and sent him away. They said, Who, how dare you come in here and tell us you're going to take, did you do any of this work? Did, hey, you want the, that master wants something? Tell him to come down here and work this vineyard himself. Oh, he's sitting up there in his private uh, well, they didn't have private jet, private donkey, wagon, whatever it is that he had. And he's not doing anything. And, and we're here doing all the work. And he's off just living in leisure. And he has no idea what it takes to make this what make this operation happen. He thinks he's just going to come in here and collect. How dare he? And so they actually beat this guy. I'm guessing this guy was pretty bold. This servant. He, I mean, to just walk in there and just get beaten. I'm guessing he probably came in and said something like, I'm reading between the lines a little bit. Just forgive me, okay? And I'm, I'm guessing he probably came in and said a little something like, what do you guys think you're doing? This isn't your place. This is, the ma- this is my master's place. This is our master's place. And he is here to collect what is his. He's given you a fair wage. He's given you a place to live. He's done all he can for you. 
And you've agreed to, you have agreed to this service. How dare you try to claim this for your own? This is not your land. This is his. And this man, for doing that or saying that or whatever it is that he said, he got a beaten and he got sent away back to the master. Then it gets worse. Verse 4, it says, and again, he sent unto them another servant. At him they cast stones. I'm telling you, the envy, the rage, the anger, how dare you to come in here and take what we have worked so hard for? And they wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. When you cast stones at somebody in the Bible, that was, that was a death shot. I mean, you were aiming to kill somebody. And they sent him away shamefully handled. That, that word shamefully, that's an intense word. Talking about extreme dishonor, complete humiliation. They sent him back to the master. But look at this master, how patient he was. Verse 6. Having yet therefore one... Or this, in verse 5 it says that it happened repeatedly, right? Over and over. They even, they even drew blood. They even killed some of the people that he sent. Verse 6. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying... They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. You see, during this time, um, the whole idea of willing over property just wasn't around. So in other words, you know, you have property, assets, and you want to make sure that when you pass away, they end up in the hands of the right person. And if you don't have a will, then they go to your next of kin. Uh, if you do have a will, they can go anywhere. You can take all your estate and will it over to North Brooklyn Baptist Church in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, if you want to. But uh, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, but you can if you want to. You have that that uh, under our laws, you can do that. But under their laws, you couldn't do that. You your your relatives, whether it be an heir or there was there were some other exceptions in there. But one of your relatives inherited your property. And if there was no heir, then basically the next person that was ready to put down the money for the fair value of it could could claim it, could just take a claim on your property. And you lost it all when it came to land and your assets were gone. And these men knew that. And they knew the master is sending us his son. What a fool. Look at this guy. Here comes this pipsqueak. He's coming here. He hasn't done any of this work. He hasn't done. He hasn't done any of this. He, he doesn't have calluses on his hands like we do. He has no idea what it takes to run this place. This is our place. I mean, when the sun had gotten there, imagine how entrenched they were in their envy, in their hate, in their entitlement. They said, "We're gonna." Hmm, what's the right word? We're gonna occupy this place. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna occupy Vineyard Street, and we're gonna. This is our place. He doesn't deserve any of this. We've done the work. This is our place. And these men were so full of anger and envy and hate that when the master's son came, they killed him. And it says in the in the um, it says in verse nine a very pointed question, and Jesus is asking this right to the Sanhedrin: What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He puts it right on them. <laughs> it, it, he does answer it, but it is partially rhetorical. He asks them straight up. So what do you think the, the Lord of the Vineyard should do if they would do that? I want to tell you that the audience here in the, at the time of this writing is the leaders of the Jewish people. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he speaks directly to the Jewish leaders. And he, and he tells them flat out, I have planted a vineyard, the nation of Israel. And I have planted, and, and you've got you to look in Isaiah 5. Do you mind turning there real quick? I, I, I hate to make you jump references midway through the sermon, but you've got to turn to Isaiah 5, a few books past Psalms. You've got to look at Isaiah 5, because it's, 
It's so it's worded so similarly. You can't help but think Jesus was taught, was thinking of this passage uh, when he was saying these words. Isaiah chapter five, verse one. You can just follow along or, or listen as I read. Isaiah five, verse one. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a, hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. And built a tower in the midst of it. And also he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard that I have not, that, that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that if it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. And it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And the passage goes on, but we'll leave it right there. You can lose your place there in Isaiah. It's a powerful passage that the prophet is crying out to Israel, just as Jesus was crying out to them right there in that parable and saying, God has planted the nation of Israel. And he asked them, think back to all the things God has done for you. Think about his chosen people. He compares he can, we talk about the church being the bride of Christ, but you understand in the Old Testament, the, when bride is mentioned there in relation to God, it's talking about Israel. I mean, he was, he was as close, Israel was as close to God as anyone could be. They were his chosen people. They were the ones that he had done so much for. And he asked them, think back to all I've done. That your history as a nation is as a vineyard, is as this one, his well-beloved, that Isaiah calls him. That planted a vineyard. And just like, just like in Mark, you see in Isaiah 5, the same thing. A, a man who plants a vineyard and he puts everything he has into it. And he does everything he could do. And Isaiah even asks, what more could I do? What more could I do that would not make this vineyard the ideal place for fruit to grow? A place that would be profitable to me. A place that I could be proud of. A place that would uh, feed not only me and my family, but would, would employ many others and would feed many nations and, and many would benefit from this vineyard. He asked, what more could I do? He says, your history as a nation is as that vineyard. I have planted you. Think back to Abraham, how I called him out of the earth of the Chaldees, and I told him, I'm going to lead you to a place that I'm going to show you. I love how God did that. He says, Abraham, I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you. In other words, you're going to go to a place and I'll just you just you go you go ahead and go Abraham and when you get there I'll tell you. I mean, talk about some faith of Abraham. And he and God said God led Abraham and he he led him uh, from the Ur of the Chaldees up that fertile crescent down into the Canaan land. He told him to look around. He said everything that you see is going to be your yours. What an incredible journey. And not only that that he planted him, but he was so patient. That when he sent his servant to Abraham, that Abraham didn't always get it right. That Abraham's family got into a mess. And then you have, you have Isaac and his family. And oh boy, what a mess. And you start reading through there. And, and, and you see, uh, you start to get a little confused. You read through your Bible and you think, man, things are going pretty good here. Abraham's doing well. And then it's like one mistake after another with Abraham. And then with Isaac, massive polygamy going on in the family. All kinds of problems. And you think, what is going on in this family? These people, God gave them a promise. God said he was going to do something great for them. What more could he do? And then they run off and they do this. Why are they doing that? 
And you get a little frustrated with them, don't you? I know the fathers, the forefathers of the faith or whatever, but they're human beings too, right? And they made human being mistakes. And they sinned against God. They rebelled against him. They tried to take the vineyard over for themselves and do it their own way, just like these men here. And, I, and, and Isaac gets in all kinds of trouble. And Jacob gets in all kinds of trouble. And, and you have uh, patriarch after patriarch um, having his ups and his downs and God being patient with them and continuing to plant that nation. They went off into Egyptian bondage and then God let him out with a mighty hand. And he, and he told Moses, lead these people. Just lead them out, lead them out of Egypt. And, and through great deliverance, God had done that. He took care of his vineyard. And he planted it in the Canaan land. And he made it a fruitful place. A place of milk and honey. He planted them there. And he took care of them. He put a hedge about it. He built a tower. He did all the things it would take for that vineyard to grow. He gave them the law of Moses. I'm talking about a law, not that you could achieve. That was not what the law was about but a law that would bring harmony and unity to their society, a law that would draw them from an early age to follow the only Lord God, a law that would protect and keep things out of their culture, their society, that would keep them from turning away from God. And what did they do? Oh, one mess. What? It's a mess, isn't it? The whole story. It's, a, it's ups and downs. It's, it, it's a mess. It's, God is saying, what more could I have done for my vineyard? He's, he's putting it all right now on, this, on the Sanhedrin. He's saying, what more could I have done for you? And, 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 and it recalls back all the times of God's deliverance. How he sent the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And uh, I love Jeremiah that he's preaching to them and he's saying, Babylon's coming. They're going to destroy this place. And Jeremiah was one prophet. But there was a whole group of prophets out there. And you know what they were telling the king? Babylon's not going to take us over. In fact, having Babylon here is going to be a good thing. Yeah, they're going to protect us. They're going to keep us safe. Kind of like how what was going on right in Mark chapter 12. They're under Roman occupation. It's like the same exact thing going on uh, in, in Jesus's day in his earthly ministry as it was going on in Jeremiah's day. And they're saying and and they're saying Jeremiah's a nut. And he don't know what he's talking about. And Ezekiel, he's a nut. They don't know. And uh, they have, you know, th- this is going to be fine. We're not going to come under God's judgment. These guys are crazy. And what happened? Babylon came in and destroyed them and carried them off into captivity. And I like Jeremiah especially because even when he was right and vindicated and Babylon came marching in, what, did the, what was the next thing that they did? They locked him up and stuck him in prison. <laughs> and they just could not accept the fact that God's judgment was coming down on them. They would not respect the authority of the owner of the vineyard. Coy. And then Jesus brings it all down right here because now, now the owner of the vineyard has brought his only son. So you've killed my servants, the prophets. You've killed every servant I've sent to you. You've chased them off. You've stoned them. And now the owner's only son is standing in front of you. And what was going on in their minds? It's already revealed to us previously in Mark. They're already, they're already way past trying to figure out a way to destroy him. Trying to figure out a way to kill him. In fact, the next passage, they try to get him arrested by the Roman government. Uh, try to trick him into telling people not to pay their taxes. Uh, and so they're, they're already well on their way to trying to figure out how to, ki- how to kill the master's son. And Jesus is calling him right out. And he says, what more, what more could I do? And he gives him a very pointed question. He says, if all this happens, what do you think the owner of the vineyard should do? He puts it right on him. What do you think they should do? And you can just hear the big gulp that they knew they had been called out. That it was, it was they represented the rebellion of the nation and that the owner of the vineyard had come, had sent his only son. Now, if I were to say, all right, now let's bow in a word of prayer, let's be dismissed. That would be an interesting 
tale about the nation of Israel and their rebellion against God and against his own son. But uh, I think we could go a little further in the last few minutes of the message because I think, I don't, I don't, I, I think only, not only do we see kind of the secular world and we see the nation of Israel, but I think we see ourselves here as well. See, because God has planted a lot of vineyards. He's planted some vineyards. I'm talking about he has helped some places come to be through his own wealth, his own might, and he's made those places prosper. Um, I, I think we can see it, see it in our own lives. I think we can see um, his own care and his own claim of ownership over us. I think about our, our nation, America. And I don't want to preach to America or whatever because I'm preaching to the people right here in the pulpit or in the pews, okay? So, so I'm not going to try to get too far off here, but I just think about the fact that God has planted us where we are. Everyone in here tonight lives in America, right? Maybe you're an American, maybe you're not, but we all live in America. Can we agree on that? I'm telling you, God's planted us here. That where you are in your life, I'm talking about geographically, is not an accident. You are where you are by the grace and the hand of Almighty God. And God's planted you here. And I think if we're not careful, we can start to get like these rebellious renters where we say, we, we get envy and greed and, and anger in our hearts about our, about our own personal situation. We forget to see the good things God has done in our lives. You know, this thing about envy, it's important because the book of Luke tells us that Christ was crucified for envy. That the Romans and the Jews envied his power and influence. And that's why they killed him. So it's a powerful thing if it gets into our hearts and our lives. We're in America tonight. I mean, we're in America. I think, I think it's just important to say God's planted a vineyard here. Now, does that mean America's perfect? No, certainly not. When we say God bless America, we're not saying God approve of everything America does. No, certainly not. And neither are we telling the world, hey, God's on our side. God bless America. That's certainly not what we're trying to do. God bless America just simply means, God, in spite of who we are, in spite of all of our problems, God, we need your blessing. God, God, you've, we, we acknowledge that you have put us here for this time, that, that your blessing is, is, is evident on our history, uh, on how this nation came to be. And we want to say thank you, God, that we get to be here, because to live in this country is a great opportunity. I'm saying we live in a very wealthy owner's vineyard. If, in fact, if you live, I looked up some statistics. I've, I've, I've quoted these off the cuff in the past, and I've never actually looked them up to verify them, so I did a little research and found out this. If your family income is above $10,000 a year, family income, above $10,000 a year, then you are wealthier than 84% of the world. 84% of the world. If your family income is more than $50,000 a year, then you're more wealthy than 99% of the world. I had to double-check that. I thought, that can't be right. Statistically, if you make a household income of $50,000 a year or more, you're wealthier than 99% of the world. Can I just remind you folks that our very wealthy master, God Almighty, has planted us in a very prosperous vineyard. <laughs> and he's planted it, and he's taking care of it. I mean, we are living, you know, we don't know if in 100 years, 500 years, however long it's going to be, that if America will still be here. I mean, there's nations in our history books that aren't nations today. So we, we have no idea what, what the future holds. But we now live in this time where we get to live here. We get to be among the 99% richest people in the world. I'm telling you, God has planted us in a fruitful vineyard. And we ought to acknowledge that. We ought to say, thank you, God, that I get to live here. This is great. Now, I'm not trying to take away from your problems. 
but hopefully we can see them in a little bit different light. That God has planted us in a very prosperous vineyard. Okay, forget about how much money we have. Here's an interesting fact. As far as I can tell, we're all alive in here tonight. Let me check. Yes, I am alive tonight. Praise the Lord. I mean, we are all alive. And uh, have you ever seen that T-shirt, I Survived Roe Roe v. Wade? Uh, You know, it's supposed to be kind of an anti-abortion message. I looked up some statistics about myself. I was kind of curious. You know that during the 1980s, that was the most prolific decade. And I was born in that decade. Yes, I'm not old or young, however you're looking at it. Um, If you were born in the 1980s, that was the most prolific decade for abortion post-Roe v. Wade. Over 1.5 million abortions were reported during that decade. And, of course, that's reported, 1.5 million over 10 years. Of course, we found out two years ago with Kermit Gosnell, who was arrested and convicted uh, and is in prison uh, for murder as an abortion doctor in Philadelphia, that he had done thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, and never reported any of them. So we don't even know that 1.5 million could be a drop in the bucket compared to actual numbers. I want to tell you this, that God has had mercy that we're even alive today. I think that I survived that, that at that time, during those 10 years in the 1980s, that 300 out of 1,000 pregnancies were being terminated. And I survived. And we survived. And, and we're alive today. I'm just telling you, thank God, praise the Lord, we're alive. God has given us life. God has given us uh, opportunity to serve in the vineyard. He's given us a job. I'm telling you, I mean, maybe you've worked hard all your life and you've, and you've really dug it out for your job. And, I, and thank God for that. But just remember, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any of it if God didn't give you life. Uh, a man in our, uh, has been attending our church, made us a nice cross, uh, decorative cross there uh, for our, uh, our, uh, behind the pulpit area. Built the pulpit as well, actually, and did a really great job with it. And I just was throwing compliments at him left and right and said, thank you so much. This is so amazing. And you're so talented. And he just looked at me kind of bizarre that a preacher would say that. And he said, I didn't make my hands like kind of like with an attitude, like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like, and he was giving glory to God. He's saying, God gave me this. God, God's planted me here in my life. And, and God has given me this vineyard to work. And, 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 it, and God is crying out. What more can I do for you? Man, so many of our prayers. Hey, cast all your care on the Lord. He wants to hear every one of your prayers. He wants to hear all your needs, all your wants. But I'm telling you, sometimes we get those two confused, don't we? Sometimes we need to learn about other people's needs to really understand what the difference between our needs and our wants are. You know what I mean? Lord, I need this iPad. Well, God wants you to cast your care on him, but I'm telling you, you probably don't need that. <laughs> our needs and our wants get all mixed up. We're, we're planted in a very fruitful vineyard. And we live in America, a prosperous Gospel-filled nation. Now, our, our nation needs to be kind of reseeded with the gospel. We have, uh, we're quickly becoming a nation of heretics. But the gospel's here. It is here. You can go online and find a church that preaches the gospel. Praise the Lord. And, and think about just the age that we live in. We live in 2015, an age of technology. I mean, we have the Bible more accessible than it has ever been. You're talking about times in the Middle Ages when people chained the Bible to the, to the pulpit to keep it from the people. Uh, we went and looked at a Bible in the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art last week, and this Bible, a few people lost their heads over it. I mean, over this uh, handwritten Bible. And uh, you think about the cost that was involved. It cost people's lives uh, to have the Bible in their hand. And now we have it. We have it everywhere. We got it coming out of everywhere. We got paperback and hardback. And uh, you can go in the dollar store. Dollar store. All of our Bibles in our church. They're from the dollar store. One dollar Bibles. And you got them on your phone. Free download. And your TV. And your and your, your smartwatch coming out. And you probably be your ankle bracelet one day. And you've got the Bible everywhere. I'm just telling you. God's planted us in a fruitful vineyard. 
He has blessed us. And if he were to walk into our lives tonight, now we could talk about God walking into the nation of Israel and up to the Sanhedrin, and that's important. We could talk about God walking into America and what would he find in the vineyard. But we're the ones that are here tonight. If the Lord, the master of the vineyard, walked into our lives, would he find faithful, thankful servants? Just thankful to be working for the master. Thankful for the the fair pay. He gave me everything. And all I have to do is serve him. And just faithful servants of the master. Or would he find angry, rebellious renters? People that had been entrusted with something and had taken it for their own. Man, it's a pointed question. Can I remind you? Our lives are not our own. We're bought with a price. And I, to conclude tonight, I want to I leave on a high note. That because you live in America and you're among the 99% most wealthy people in the world, because you have the Bible more accessible to you than anyone else on the planet, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, oh, I stink. I am a loser. I can't believe it. I am so selfish. Oh. Now, I mean, if you feel that a little bit, that's called conviction. And now that's a good thing. You know, the preacher doesn't need to put people on a guilt trip. But a conviction trip, that's a good journey to take sometime. And you should feel convicted. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about something there, then uh, invite him in. Let him talk to you about that. But I want you to walk out of here not spoiled or feeling guilty, but I want you to feel very equipped and very accepted. Because this, well, imagine if it, okay, these men, I'm talking about a millionaire came up to them and said, work for me in my place. I mean, out of anybody he could have chose, he chose these guys and said, come work in my vineyard. I'm talking about the, the Bill Gates of vineyards came up to them and said, come work in my vineyard. I've got all the right tools. I've got this implanted right. This thing's going to produce. I'm going to pay you a fair wage. And they rebelled against him. I want to tell you that God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord Almighty Jesus Christ wants you to work in his vineyard. What, you know how I want you to walk out of here tonight? Feeling very privileged. Like you're a ch- Imagine how it would change your life if Bill Gates walked up to you, mega billion dollar, was he worth, like $40 billion or something, one of the richest man on the planet, and said, hey, I want you to come work for me. Imagine how that would change your life. I, I bet things would be very different tomorrow if that happened to you. It would transform your world. I'm telling you, the God of heaven and earth says, come work for me. That's powerful. He's calling you. He's saying, come work in my vineyard. And if you, if you feel like, you know, you're kind of on the outside of it looking in, you may need to be saved. Can I tell you that there's a great master that's hiring? <laughs> he wants you to be in the vineyard. He wants you to work together. I don't know about in your job, but sometimes employees fight with each other and they get all upset. I would like, I would like to, I'm imagining in my mind that maybe in this vineyard, all these rebellious renters, maybe there was one or two of them in there that weren't. Maybe there's one or two of them that said, this is ridiculous. These guys complaining. Look what they did to the master's son. This is awful, terrible. And I'll tell you, in God's family, sometimes you can have a little bit of that too. But we want you to be in here. We want you to be co-laborers together. We want to work with you in the master's vineyard. And the way he ends it is he says, what should the master do? I ask you that question tonight. If the Lord were to come into our lives and take a look around at his claim on us, what should the master do? What should he do? The answer for them, it wasn't positive. But for us, I believe there's still an opportunity. An opportunity to be faithful servants, to be reliable renters in the Lord's vineyard. And when one day when he comes for his claim, he will find us faithful, faithful servants. And we will find him 
to be the great master of our lives. Let's bow for a word of prayer. I'm going to have a, just a short time of invitation, very brief. This piano begins to play. If the Lord's spoken to you about something, feel free to use the altar. Pray where you are. Every person's got a wild fantasy about living in a rich family. Oh, if I just had a rich relative, that would be so great. Your father is the king of glory. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He wants to give us the kingdom. That's powerful. When you live with that knowledge every day, it takes that covetousness right out of you. That I got to have this thing, I got to have the next thing, I got, it, it zaps it. Because you know you have everything that really matters in life. And it is a powerful way of living. People are searching the ends of the world to find that. And you've got it right in your hands, right in that book. I don't know who bought the top floor of that new building in Midtown, and, and I'm not trying to pick on them. Maybe they're a decent person. But I just imagine probably somebody wants to go up in the top of that to, just to look around so they can say, look how I'm the highest one here. I'm the highest one on the hill. And they're not. Fifty stories up, however tall it is, that's nothing compared to God's perspective. Not even close to the level on which a Christian lives. God bless you.